Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guest today is Dr. Francis Fukuyama. Dr. Fukuyama is a senior fellow at Stanford University's Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies, Mosbachter Director of FSI's Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law, and Director of Stanford's Master's in International Policy. He also serves as a professor by courtesy in political science at Stanford University and is the chairman of the editorial board of The American Purpose. His seminal article on The End of History first appeared in The National Interest in the late 80s and became a seminal work in book form as well. It has since been republished in over 20 languages. His more recent book is Identity, the Demand for Dignity and the Politics of Resentment and was published in 2018. In this interview, we discuss the state of American politics and the role the technology plays. Dr. Fukuyama describes the rise of populism in the United States, the deepening polarization between voters, and how platforms like Twitter, Facebook, and Google have facilitated this polarization. He proposes the application of middleware to these platforms and provides possible benefits to such applications. Additionally, Dr. Fukuyama gives his perspective on challenges arising from both Russia and China and provides an analysis of the Biden administration. If you enjoy Technovation, please consider reading my new book, Getting to Nimble, How to Transform Your Company into a Digital Leader. The book is now available on Amazon or wherever else you buy books. As a special offer to our CXO listeners, if you purchase my book for your team, I'd be happy to join your team for a discussion on it. To learn more, write us at information at metastrategy.com or visit gettingtonimble.com. Thank you. And now for a word from our partner, Tanium, and the company's co-founder and chief executive officer, Orion Hindawi. Orion wanted to take a moment to provide some recommendations for CXOs in charge of technology and digital about how best to manage the cybersecurity landscape. Yeah, so our customers, I think, are realizing there are three things that they really need to be secure. The first is they have way too many products. And as a result of that, they're unable to operate all these products well, and there are holes in their security posture that are created as a result. Many of our customers have 20 or 30 or sometimes 50 different tools. And if they can move to a platform approach, they have a much higher chance of succeeding. The second thing that a lot of our customers are realizing is they need certain visibility on their environment. Every asset where it is, who's using it, what data's on it, what vulnerabilities it has, and to really be able to trust that they have three or four nines confidence in that data set instead of, in some cases, 85 or 90% confidence, which in reality leaves way, way too much of a surface area of vulnerability. And the third one is they need to be able to remediate problems they find instantaneously at scale globally, even over slow links, even over devices that are not easy to reach. Because without that capability, unfortunately, even if you know that there's a problem, you're still going to get hit by the security event that comes after it because you can't fix it in time. And so between that platform approach, being able to have really, really comprehensive visibility and having really strong control, our customers are seeing a huge upgrade in their capability. And now for a word from our partner, Aptio. Digital transformation is a journey, not a destination. Technology decisions teams make today determines the success of tomorrow. That's why Aptio is dedicated to helping companies harness the power of trusted, actionable insights. It's called technology business management, and more than 60% of the Fortune 100 are already using it to speed their innovation. Learn more about how Aptio can help you connect your technology decisions to better business outcomes. Visit aptio.com. And now on to the interview. Uh, Dr. Fukuyama, it's a pleasure to speak with you today. Well, thanks very much for having me. Well, I, I thought we would begin. I'd love for it to, to cover a number of topics as your 
your field of expertise is so expansive uh, to cover both geopolitics as well as technology. For for some who may know uh, your your earlier works, they may not be quite as familiar to the extent to which you've delved so much further into technology, which, which uh, as the conversation goes on, I'm sure is going to make sense uh, to those people listening and watching in as much as th those have become so enmeshed and would love to talk a bit about your own diagnosis as well as some of your own uh, recommendations for, for improvements uh, in all of the above. But I wanted to begin, um, Dr. Fukuyama, with the rise of populism. This is certainly a trend that has been accelerating. Uh, and we see it, uh, everything from the election of Donald Trump in 2016, uh, Brexit in the UK, a uh, number of countries that have either elected or uh, have, you know, one thinks of, thinks of Marine Le Pen in France, uh, candidates who are rising uh, within various countries who can be described as populist. Talk a bit about your own diagnosis, if you would, as to some of the factors at play that have led to this. Uh, sure. So uh, I think we need to begin with a definition of populism. Uh, there are actually different varieties. There's a left-wing version, which would be Hugo Chavez, and a right-wing version, which would be Donald Trump. Uh, they have some things in common. So populists argue that uh, the world is actually being run by a cabal of elites that are self-interested, that are manipulating um, uh, politics for their own uh, self-interested purposes and cutting ordinary people uh, out of that loop. Uh, the difference, I think, between the right and left-wing versions is that the left-wing uh, populists want to redistribute um, income and wealth, you know, massively uh, to from rich to poor. Uh, the right-wingers uh, are more intent on issues like national identity, where they oftentimes uh, associate national identity with a particular ethnic group. So, for example, Viktor Orban in Hungary. Uh, says that Hungarian national identity is based on Hungarian ethnicity, which isn't so great if you're not an ethnic Hungarian living in Budapest or somewhere else in the country. Um, the other thing that's common about them is that they're anti-institutional. Uh, so I think any uh, modern liberal democracy has institutions that check power. Uh, these are courts and independent judiciary, uh, uh, media and independent media, uh, bureaucracies that are impartial. Uh, and we see all of these institutions being attacked by populists. Uh, just begin with Donald Trump himself, who you know spent uh, most of his presidency fighting his own Justice Department, FBI, attacking uh, the mainstream media as en enemies of the American people and, uh, uh, and so forth. But this has been true in Hungary, in Poland, in India, in um, you know, many other countries where uh, check and balance institutions have come under uh, severe uh, criticism and attack by populist leaders. Now, the right-wing version of populism uh, is really the most troubling because it's appeared in the heart of the United States and other democracies that we really thought were extremely well uh, established as democracies. And I think there, uh, you know, one of the triggers was probably economic. Uh, globalization had produced a lot of disruption uh, in terms of inequality, economic inequality. Uh, but one of the big debates that's gone on since 2016 is whether it's really primarily about economics or about other things related to culture. 
And I tend to think that while economics may explain the timing, uh, the real issues are cultural ones, because if people were simply worried about inequality, they would have turned to a figure like Bernie Sanders rather than to Donald Trump, because Bernie Sanders, you know, has a kind of traditional uh, social democratic, you know, um, uh, platform that would tax the rich and, you know, provide benefits to ordinary people. But they didn't go for that. Uh, I mean, part of the Democratic Party did, but the major currents around the world have been these right-wing, either ethno-nationalists or religious nationalists, uh, like Modi in India, mm -hmm. uh, which suggests to me that the real motive is really uh, more of a cultural one. In the United States, uh, unfortunately, a lot of this, I think, is related to race uh, because what we've seen progressively over time since the 1960s is a sorting of the two uh, big political parties, um, uh, you know, according to racial categories. So in uh, in the U.S., once the Democrat, you know, the Democratic Party uh, from the New Deal uh, forward had been a coalition that included a lot of diverse groups, including a bunch of Southern segregationists, but uh, beginning in the 1960s, when the party embraced the civil rights uh, movement, uh, a lot of the white uh, Southern segregationists began moving out of the Democratic Party and into the Republican Party. Uh, and by the second decade of the 20th century, that transformation, that Southern realignment had been almost complete. And so the two parties are now uh, less about economic ideology and more about identity. And I think that, uh, you know, the left redefined identity. They're, they're really the ones in a way that pioneered uh, this shift because instead of seeing inequality as something that applied to a broad class of people like the working class or the proletariat, they began to see identity as something that was a characteristic of narrower groups like African-Americans or Hispanics or women or gays and lesbians uh, and so forth. And I think that that's, that uh, identity framing has you know, triggered fears on the part of uh, the older groups. And so uh, the shifting demographic balance in the country has uh, scared a lot of, you know, especially white working class um, uh, people that they're going to be displaced as the ones who define American uh, national identity. And that's why uh, a subject like immigration has be become central to the agendas of most uh, right-wing populists, uh, both in the United States and in other countries, in France and Germany, uh, and so forth. Um, and then there's finally just a, you know, what I would regard as a pure cultural uh, dimension uh, that the single thing that correlates the most strongly with who votes for a populist party is actually population density. Uh, that people who live in big, diverse uh, urban clusters like New York or Chicago or San Francisco uh, tend to vote for liberal uh, candidates, whereas the populist vote comes from second and third tier cities or people that live in the countryside and small towns uh, and, and the like. Uh, and that reflects, I think, a cultural difference, um, you know, that's reflected partly in levels of education and the like, uh, uh, and in the conservative values that tend to, you know, uh, dominate in non-urban uh, non-urban uh, non areas. And uh, there, you know, quite frankly, is a kind of 
cultural snobbery that people that live in big, you know, urban areas have towards uh, people that are not like themselves. And I think that that resentment is uh, something that's felt by, you know, a lot of uh, uh, a lot of people on the other side. And I think was one of the explanations uh, again for this coalition that's ended up supporting populism. So I think those are the general outlines of my account of why, you know, this has happened in the second decade of the 21st century. Mm -hmm. And and do do you, do you see much reason for optimism in terms of overcoming this to any degree? I mean, you're somebody who has served in Republican um, administrations. You were in the state department in the first George Bush uh, administration, for example, Um, you, you were connected with, uh, conservative ideas, neoconservatism, for instance, though you distanced yourself in its interpretation and connection with the Iraq war, for example. You're somebody who's spoken about, uh, you know, your support of or at least happiness with the election to, uh, of Obama, uh, as well as um, the most recent, uh, the results of the most recent election and Biden's uh, election as well. So somebody who has uh, had a foot in, in multiple uh, parties, ideologies uh, yourself, I'm wondering to what extent your own example is more emblematic of what might be emerging among a variety of people towards independence. Uh, the data certainly seems to suggest that a, n- a great number of people self-identify that way. But of course, uh, I think Ross Perot uh, hit the high water mark at 19% in an election as an independent con- uh, candidate, at least at the federal level. Uh, any any thoughts here about, you know, kind of how this fever well, is broken? Yeah, I'm not uh, so optimistic about that because I actually think that uh, you know, in many ways, the polarization has deepened, and it's deepened just in the three months or so since, uh, well, I, I guess it's now five months, but uh, five months since the election and, and three months since January 6th. Uh, uh, you know, I uh, left the Republican Party when it started moving to the right, you know, first with the rise of the Tea Party and then with the rise of Donald Trump, mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, I'm basically an internationalist. And was heading in this very, I thought, ugly and unpleasant uh, uh, ethno-nationalist direction. And, you know, unfortunately, because of Trump's personality and his self-centeredness, he's kind of redefined what it means to be a Republican into something that right now is completely crazy. I mean, you know, this used to be a party that was defined by certain basic ideas like free trade, like... um, certain kind of liberal internationalism, um, uh, you know, by support of markets, uh, uh, you know, kind of fiscal responsibility, all of these things. And all of those have gone out the window uh, in the last uh, few years. And uh, they've now centered so much on Trump and his personality. It's, It's become a cult of personality. You know, so you have half of Republicans, according to many polls, uh, supporting QAnon theories, which is truly, you know, truly insane. I mean, that's not a that's not a political position. That's just a crazy cult. Um, uh, and, you know, I think the worst uh, violation of democratic norms was the whole, you know, big lie that the election was stolen on, on November 3rd, which has now also come to define what it means to be a Republican. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, you know, something I don't want anything to do with. And I'm, you know, the, the problem runs very deep and it gets into the technology issue that, that you mentioned at the, at the outset, which is that a lot of this has been made possible by technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, it used to be before the rise of the Internet 
that uh, you know access to information was guarded by certain gatekeepers. So you had uh, established media organizations. You only had three television networks, uh, and they could pretty much filter what people understood to be true uh, facts. Let's say about an, uh, the outcome of an election. Uh, but with the internet, uh, you know, we celebrated it at, at first as uh, uh, giving people, everyone, the ability to be their own publisher and to get around all of these bottlenecks. But in fact, uh, you know, it's kind of done the opposite. It's empowered everybody to say whatever stupid thing they want uh, and deliberately false information uh, and the like. So now, if you are uh, inclined to want to believe that. Trump won the election and you go on the internet and Google, you know, election fraud in 2020, you know, you'll get tens of thousands of hits of, you know, uh, that seem to confirm uh, you in your opinion. And, you know, as Jonathan Haidt, uh, I think has shown uh, a lot of people are not rational in a kind of classical sense. They, uh, they pursue what he calls motivated reasoning, meaning they use their cognitive powers not to uh, somehow objectively evaluate information, but rather to confirm uh, prior beliefs that they had. So if you really want to believe that Trump won the election, uh, you're going to use your cognitive ability to get information that will confirm that belief. Uh, and I think that's kind of where we are right now. And I think if you don't somehow solve that prior uh, cognitive, you know, information question, it's going to be hard to solve the the political question. Yeah. And, and you, you, you've spoken and, and, and written about the role of major tech platforms focused uh, primarily on Twitter, Facebook, and Google and the, the role they play, the challenge they present uh, directly related to their scale. Um, mm -hmm. Talk a bit about a bit more uh, delving into the same ideas that you're just introducing here and their applicability to these companies um, in further diagnosing the issues. And then I, I know that you've got some some uh, proposals as to their potential sure. resolution. I, of course, I'd like to get into that as well. You know, I think that uh, there are several problems that are related to the scale of those three internet platforms. Uh, the reason that they're so large, I think, has to do with, you know, what are called network uh, economies, where a network becomes more valuable the larger it is. And that's the reason why, you know, Facebook was able to scale up at such a breakneck uh, speed. Uh, no, you know, company dealing in, let's say, a manufactured product could possibly uh, scale up that uh, that quickly. Um, but it gives them tremendous uh uh, tremendous power. Now, a lot of the discussion, uh, you know, about antitrust has focused on the economic power that these platforms have. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, it's a serious problem. I mean, Amazon is both a platform and it's a seller on its own platform and it competes against, you know, its own customers. And so that creates uh, conflicts of interest. And that's something that I think, you know, conventional antitrust law uh, can and should deal with. Uh, what I uh, have found more troubling, actually, is the political power that those platforms uh, exercise. I uh, led a Stanford working group uh, that was originally called a working group on antitrust, but 
we decided to change the name to the Working Group on Platform Scale because we began to realize that antitrust is too narrow uh, a framing of the problem. Uh, antitrust is, as it's evolved in the United States and in Europe to a large extent, is really focused on economic abuses. But, you know, in uh, our view, the real problems were the, the threat to democracy that large platforms uh, posed. And the reason they pose it is that they have this incredible ability to amplify or to silence uh, certain political voices. Now, I uh, imagine that as many, uh, uh, as many uh, conservatives have been complaining that you know, the leadership of Facebook, Twitter, and Google tend to be pretty socially liberal. Uh, and, you know, the way that they've been pressured to uh, curate content has been, you know, to do things like kick Donald Trump off of, uh, off of Twitter. Mm -hmm. But I do think that there's an underlying problem that that, you know, although I was quite happy to see him gone, I don't think that that's an appropriate or sustainable solution in a democracy that has a First Amendment and a commitment to uh, freedom of speech. And in fact, uh, the way that Trump has been silenced uh, since he was kicked off Twitter is a little bit troubling because, you know, it shows how much power that platform had uh, to act as a megaphone. And I think really the problem over the last few years has been that the business models of these platforms uh, uh, incentivize them to go for virality and clicks and attention. And that the way you get it is not by, you know, reciting statistics about how, you know, how the world is doing okay and, and uh, that sort of thing. It's by uh, conspiracy theories, outlandish claims, you know, personal invective, uh, all of these sorts of things are what attract eyeballs. And so just pursuing their own economic uh, self-interest has led them to amplify uh, extremist views, you know, misinformation or deliberate disinformation. Uh, and so that, uh, it seems to me, is what the central uh, concern of policy should be. Uh, in this uh, respect, I break from a lot of my colleagues who would actually like the platforms to, you know, for example, get rid of speech, uh, hate speech and conspiracy theories um, and act as if, you know, they're, uh, you know, essentially censors that are preventing Americans from seeing this kind of information, because mm -hmm. I just don't think that that's an appropriate role for a private company uh, to be undertaking when they are at a scale that really will affect, uh, you know, what it is that Americans can see and hear. But I do think that they should be, uh, their power to amplify or to silence should somehow be reduced. And that that's kind of the central challenge as a democracy that, you know, we face in, in dealing with them. Mm -hmm. And, and you re referred to the Working Group for Platform Scale at Stanford, uh, and you've developed a recommendation as to at least how you believe this might take place. Uh, you introduced what you refer to as middleware, a, right. a, a terminology that technologists will certainly be very familiar with, though you have a, a different application of the term. Talk a bit about the, the, the proposal that you've developed, please. Well, so at the moment, you know, uh, what you see on your Facebook or Twitter or uh, Google search feed is determined by an algorithm that is completely non-transparent. I mean, you can kind of deduce, you know, you click on, uh, you know, websites for, uh, 
certain kind of vacation and all of a sudden you see ads that, that you know reflect that so you suspect that the algorithm is you know tracking what you're doing and in fact uh, there is a very complex uh, technology that's really at the core of the platform's business models that uh, that determines that but it's an algorithm that you do not have any control over and you don't have really any knowledge of uh, directly and so our idea for middleware was that rather than leaving this power in the hands of these big platforms, uh, it should be outsourced. Uh, and so you should get to control the knobs and dials uh, that determine what shows up in your search results or your Twitter feed uh, or whatnot. And that the way to do this was not by giving that control to the government, which I think uh, you know, is, is not the right uh, player, uh, but rather to outsource it to uh, what we labeled a middleware company. So it's middleware in the sense that it would stand between uh, the user and the platform and could filter uh, what the user saw according to criteria that the user himself or herself uh, set. And there are different versions of this. I mean, in a more extreme version, it could take over the entire user experience. So rather than uh, you know seeing a website that Facebook uh, defined it would be the middleware platform. I, I suspect that that's reaching a little bit too far because this is something the platforms would fiercely uh, resist. It could be a lighter touch thing that is a little bit like what Twitter has already sought to do internally, which is simply to label certain tweets as unverified or controversial uh, or so forth. There's actually a, a, a startup called NewsGuard uh, that already provides a service that's a little bit like this. What they do is they rate not individual tweets, uh, uh, but they rate the credibility of uh, different information sources uh, on a scale of, I don't know, one to 10. And, um, you know, they, they indicate uh, sources they think are highly credible and those that are uh, less so. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of research out there, including by... Um, my Stanford colleague, uh, uh, Sam Weinberg, that indicates that even, you know, Stanford students that one would think are relatively sophisticated in being able to judge credibility actually don't do a very good job uh, at it. Um, and so if you, you know, created this middleware layer of competitive com companies that would offer this kind of service, you might, for example, have a coalition of universities that would create an NGO that would, you know, look at academic sources of information for faculty and students and would point them in the direction of, you know, sources that they thought were uh, credible. So this is the basic idea is to give users uh, control again over the information that they see in their, uh, in their feeds. Mm -hmm. And is the the hope then is that the users themselves would draw the right conclusions and filtering out those things that are deleterious. Um, you know, you're, you're recalling back the early parts of our conversation, Dr. Fukuyama, and the fact that there's an increase in tribalism, uh, that people's uh, political perspectives, the narratives yeah. that they are weaving around them become something that defines them, uh, something that's almost like religion, if you will, or or, mm -hmm. or other things that are per, you know personally defining and have almost faith as the as the background of those. Um, overcoming that uh, with with a middleware that people are fine tuning themselves, I guess the hope is that they're going to make the draw the right conclusions in the filtering. Well, that they, no, they so 
Yeah, I mean, the, the biggest criticism this proposal has generated is that uh, middleware would simply reinforce the existing filter bubbles into which people have sorted themselves. And so, although universities may mandate, you know, uh, uh, websites with a certain level of academic credibility, you're going to get conservative groups or alt-right groups that will create their own filters that will filter out anything from the mainstream media and actually push people in the wrong direction. And that's right. I don't think that middleware solves the problem of hate speech or, um, or conspiracy theories, but I don't think that that's the appropriate uh, object of public policy, right? Mm -hmm. That uh, we do believe in freedom of speech. Uh, and if somebody wants to believe a conspiracy theory, uh, we sh neither we nor a platform nor the government should be in the job of trying to stamp that out. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, what we do want to do is prevent the conspiracy theory from leaching into a broader public. And I think that's really what the platforms have done. You know, so for example, you have um, uh, mothers that go on uh, a yoga website, you know, to do their daily yoga exercises. And it turns out a lot of those have gotten infected by uh, QAnon type theories, um, uh, and, you know, the ability to reach these broader audiences, I think, is, you know, due to the fact that the platforms try to figure out what, you know, what people would be susceptible to, uh, since they just care about the clicks and not about the quality of the clicks, you know, that they encourage that sort of thing. And so what we want to do is try to uh, not eliminate all this bad information, but actually just to make sure that it stays in niches where you know, it doesn't have this broader effect on, on democratic publics. Mm -hmm. do, do you, uh, you mentioned that one of the greatest worries you have is the political clout that these major platforms have, the technology platforms have. Uh, obviously, the, the, the government uh, governments uh, abroad and governments here in the United States have begun to take various actions to attempt to, to counter some of the power. Do you have much optimism that there's going to be government intervention in, in, a, in a productive way of some sort? Uh, not in the United States. You know, in Europe, <clears throat> they've taken a regulatory route. There's this new digital services uh, directive from the European Commission and individual European countries have tried to even criminalize fake news. Uh, there's a German Nets DG law that that tries to do something like that. I just don't think that that's that's plausible or workable in the United States because uh, to have a regulatory solution requires a degree of social consensus that may exist in Germany or in Scandinavia or the Netherlands, but it just doesn't exist uh, in this country. You know, another route that countries have taken, other democracies have taken, is through public broadcasting. So. Uh, um, ZDF or the BBC uh, or the public broadcasters in Scandinavia actually feed people uh, what those quasi-independent organizations believe is in the public interest, you know, is credible news. Uh, but, you know, our public broadcasters really, I think, long ago were captured by, you know, captured by the left. They don't have any... Uh, credibility, uh, you know, for the kinds of right-wing audiences that have moved to these more extremist kinds of news uh, news sources. Uh, and so neither regulation or something like public broadcasting, I think, is possible given the high level of polarization 
uh, in the United States today. So, uh, you know, those are those are solutions that I might think, you know, th and they actually worked. I mean, back in the 1960s, there was something called the Fairness Doctrine uh, that the FCC tried to um, uh, tried to enforce, where, you know, if you're talking about a political point of view, you were required to present a, an alternative uh, view uh, as part of your public service duty as a as a broadcaster, but this was fiercely uh, opposed, uh, especially by conservatives and Republicans, because they thought that this was biased against them. Uh, and eventually, the FCC uh, uh, simply uh, eliminated the fairness doctrine back in the 1980s. Uh, so I think this is a pathway that theoretically exists, but as a matter of practical politics, it's not something that we can really pursue. Um, I've, I've been really enjoying your, your blog on the American purpose, frankly, Fukuyama, it's called, and a lot of your writing, interestingly enough, there has been about technology, not necessarily uh, completely in the vein that we've been talking about. In some cases, your very personal applications to it. And you talk about your move from Washington, DC, where you were in government, where you were in academe at institutions like George Mason, Mason and the Johns Hopkins uh, School of Advanced International Studies in 2010, moving out to the West coast. It, it almost seems as though you've become immersed, uh, in the, the the tech landscape, the ecosystem that is just naturally there, and and your own interest in technology and that maker's mindset is sort of blossomed. Talk a bit about uh, your own personal story and relationship to technology from that perspective, if you would. Uh, sure. So, um, you know, I uh, really like uh, building uh, material objects. So this really started out. I you know I'm a, a furniture maker, a cabinet maker. Uh, and I've made a, a lot of, you know, all the beds my children slept in as they were growing up and a lot of the furniture around our house. Uh, some of it got very uh, sophisticated. I made these replicas of federal period uh, furniture with, you know, inlay uh, and so forth. And in fact, I made a pair of Pembroke tables uh, that uh, came out of a, a, a tree that had fallen, a walnut tree that had fallen in our backyard in McLean, Virginia which is quite a job because you have to cut it up with a big, uh, 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 you know, chainsaw and it's a really messy long-term operation, but it had a technological dimension because, you know, it, it induced me to actually learn AutoCAD uh, uh, and 3D uh, modeling uh, in order to actually make models. So I started there and then it moved on to uh, putting, you know, the 3D model inside an actual room uh, and, with 3D Studio Max actually doing the lighting and seeing how it would look at different times of the day and under different lighting conditions uh, and so forth. And so this started, you know, a long time ago. When I moved to California, uh, I uh, really got interested in drones because I really like the idea of a personal drone that you could use to kind of take photographs and look behind buildings and this sort of thing. So. Uh, I had met Chris Anderson, who was the former editor of Wired magazine, who had just started a, a company called 3D Robotics that was selling <clears throat> open source drones. Uh, and, uh, and I bought one of his drones. I couldn't quite get it to work. So I took the control board with me. Uh, it's all based on Arduinos, basically. And I took it to the San Mateo Maker Fair, which if you've got a teenager, you may you know, know all about because these are places where uh, people interested in robotics and, you know, 3D 
I mean, any kind of um, technology like that uh, goes. Uh, and uh, he had a booth, 3D Robotics had a booth, and he helped me figure out what the problem with this uh, was. Uh, and it was quite amazing because, you know, as we were sitting there, people would come up to him and say, oh, you know, I tried out uh, this new patch on your software and it didn't work. What what happened to it? And, you know, his engineers would talk to these people and it really became clear that there was an ecosystem, you know, there in the valley that supported open source that was really quite, you know, highly uh, productive. And so uh, that's that's really what started this uh you know, this interest in in making things. And then for various reasons, I abandoned it for a number of years. But after the COVID uh, shutdown, I started, uh, you know, cycling through all of my old um, high-tech hobbies. And uh, this has been the most recent one that I've, you know, I've taken up again. Very interesting. I appreciate you sharing some of those personal anecdotes. I want to move to uh, Russia and to China, perhaps uh, um, talking about your perspectives on each of the the challenges that that each of those countries present uh, to to the U.S. and to the West, um, one at a time, if you would. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps we begin with Russia, a, a, a country you certainly were uh, very cognizant of in your your work in government, uh, in your work, your best selling books, etc., uh, and and the the ongoing evolution of the country now. Uh, a competitor in a very different way, as you've articulated, uh, not nearly uh, not looking to convert other countries to their system, as was the, the the way in which the Soviet Union operated, but looking to influence in in different ways. Talk a bit about the the challenge that they that they pose to us, please. Well, I think uh, Russia's challenge is largely a negative one. Uh, they've been very effective in coming up with ways to undermine the confidence of Western publics in their own democratic institutions. You know, between Russia and China, there's no comparison. China is incomparably more powerful. It has more financial resources. It's mastered many aspects of modern technology, uh, whereas Russia still has very much a, a, you know, an energy-based gas and oil, fossil fuel dependent uh, uh, economic system. But they've managed to leverage uh, the assets that they have in very effective ways uh, and, you know, not to project, as you said, their own way of life, but rather to simply uh, undermine the credibility of existing institutions. And so the way they intervened in 2016 was, for example, to imitate both an evangelical Christian Trump supporter or a Black Lives Matter activist, but to do it in an exaggerated way that stimulated hostility on the other side and increased the level of uh, polarization. And, you know, you have to give them credit. They figured out that you could do this with modern social media. Uh, They had the cultural sophistication. You know, I wouldn't have any idea how to imitate the voice of a Russian nationalist, but they figured out how to, uh, look and feel, you know, I, I used to follow this Twitter handle called, uh, 10 GOP, which I thought was actually the website of the Tennessee Republican Party, turned out it was some guy in St. Petersburg, you know, that was um, uh, sponsored by the IRA, this group that, you know, that did a lot of this uh, internet intervention. Uh, and, uh, you know, when it was finally shut down by Twitter, uh, uh, I was very surprised because I actually thought it was a domestic, uh, you know, political actor. Uh, so, They've done that. They've also just been willing to take risks. I, I wrote my PhD dissertation 
which was really about how the Soviet Union was had threatened intervention in the Middle East in, on numerous occasions, but they actually never did it because they were pretty risk averse. And that's just not the case with Putin anymore. He's intervened in Syria, in Venezuela, uh, in a whole bunch of different situations that his Soviet predecessors never would have gotten involved in. Uh, and that's, um, you know, that's increased his, uh, his power. It's also increased the risk that uh, that he's undertaken, um, and we'll have to see how that plays out. But I think that's kind of why he's been able to leverage a kind of intrinsically weak power base into a considerable amount of geopolitical influence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very interesting. And on, on the side of China, you've talked about how uh, that regime has gone from authoritarian to totalitarian. And you've spoken, as you did just a moment ago, uh, that, of course, they've got a degree of economic wherewithal and clout that uh, surpasses the, the Russians by quite quite a degree. Talk a bit about their sort of ongoing role and the the bipolar nature of how things seem to be developing in so many ways in terms of the American sphere of influence versus the Chinese sphere of influence, please. Well, I think, you know, the critical th uh, thing that's changed in recent years is the rise of Xi Jinping. Uh, prior to that, you know, China had been moving in a liberal direction, uh, opening up its economy, uh, providing, you know, I mean, I, I would go to China and talk to academic Chinese uh, friends who, you know, were perfectly able to criticize the government fairly openly uh, and certainly talk among themselves in critical ways. Uh, and all of that has become impossible. Uh, you know, there was a hope back then that as China got richer, it would follow the path of South Korea and Taiwan uh, and democratize because more educated, uh, wealthier people tend to want more political participation. That view is now... Uh, regarded with scorn by many people is, is obviously wrong. Uh, I'm not sure that it was obviously wrong uh, at the time. Uh, I really do think that a lot of it does have to do with Xi Jinping uh, winning this power struggle because he ha somehow has great nostalgia for the old days of the dominance of the co Communist Party and even for the Cultural Revolution, despite the fact that his family personally suffered a great deal in that period. Uh, and he's been trying to move it back in a genuinely totalitarian direction. I mean, the difference between an authoritarian and a totalitarian regime really lies probably more on the plane of ideas than anything else, where a totalitarian regime tries to control, you know, not just the economy and politics, but also your thought. Uh, and uh, that's what they've tried to do. They've now installed this social credit system by which they can monitor the minute behavior of uh, Chinese citizens. It's the same power that Google and Facebook have uh, to know about, you know, the intimate details of all your transactions. But this is power that's held not by a private company, but by the government. And uh, they use it to enforce, uh, you know, political uh, political conformity. I'm not sure I would call it a totalitarian regime. Uh, it's totalitarian in aspiration. Uh, it still hasn't arrived at this, you know, full ability to really uh, uh, instill belief and, you know, enthusiasm, but that's certainly the direction that they've been moving in. But I think the more troubling uh, aspect of Xi's uh, new policies is that they're much more aggressive internationally. Uh, it had been the case that the Chinese leadership 
essentially said that they wanted to build China internally and that they didn't want to impose their model on anybody else. But since 2013, that's been steadily changing and they've taken many initiatives, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative and militarization of, and, and claims over the South China Sea, uh, open confrontations with India, Japan, you know, other uh, others of their neighbors. Uh, and, um, you know, ultimately this uh, stated purpose of retaking uh, Taiwan, uh, you know, by force if necessary. And so uh, geopolitically, you know, they uh, are in a position to act on a lot of these things. And I, I'm afraid that they, you know, will get yet more aggressive as time goes on. And 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 uh, suffice it to say, I, I I imagine in your estimation that they will continue to be like the number one sort of formidable presence, counterbalancing or counteracting the things that uh, that the U.S. and the West undertakes. Yeah, I think that uh, I said this uh, actually on uh, Stephen Colbert many years ago. Uh, uh, you know where he was asking whether you know Islamic terrorism was going to be the biggest threat, and I said no, it's going to be China. And I believe that back then, and I believe it now, uh, that, you know, big threats come from big countries with lots of power, economic, military, uh, and so forth. The only dimension of power that the Chinese really don't have is cultural power, because, um, you know, millions of people around the world don't admire Chinese culture, particularly. They envy its economic success. Uh, but they don't say, well, we really want to, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's it's even hard to associate cultural artifacts with China because they haven't really produced any. You know, the Japanese have anime, the Koreans have K-pop. What does China have that's really comparable to that? You know, uh, so there isn't that kind of attraction on uh, that dimension uh, but in every other dimension, you know, I think they are uh, very powerful and they're growing more powerful. And so that's really going to be a big challenge to uh, liberal values and institutions uh, globally. Yeah. Uh, the early stages of any American administration uh, are very important, uh, the, the, especially if there's uh, if somebody has won by a reasonable margin, they've got capital to spend, so to say, and a limited time to do so. And as so often happens, we will see if, if history repeats itself. Uh, the midterms uh, might reverse uh, advantages that the uh, that the incumbent has, and so these these first months and first couple of years are so important. We're still very early, of course, in the. Uh, in the Biden administration, but I'd be curious with your analysis of the move so far. Um, well, in foreign policy, I have no complaints at all. I think that they've done everything that uh, they should be. Uh, you know, Trump was hugely uh, destructive of American, uh, of trust in the United States on the part of all of its democratic allies. And Biden has been reaching out to Japan, Korea, to NATO, uh, a lot of traditional allies uh, that had grown very skeptical about whether the United States was still committed to global democracy and basically told them, yes, and, you know, we want to face uh, security challenges like China and Russia together. And so all of that, I think, has been uh, very good. In domestic policy, he's taking a huge risk, uh, and it's one that could pay off, but it is a really big risk. I, normally, you know, in political science, uh, you want to have a strong 
uh, both a popular and legislative mandate to um, enact you know big uh, dramatic uh, pieces of legislation uh, because that you know will prove more durable uh, and Biden has the slimmest possible uh, majority in both the House and the Senate. Uh, he doesn't have that strong mandate. The Republicans actually did much better than uh, anyone was expecting uh, in the November election. Uh, but he's, you know, acting like uh, he's FDR with the huge, you know, Democratic majorities that uh, came about in the 1932 election. Uh, now it could just work because. We are posed, poised to come out of the pandemic. Uh, I think there is going to be a big economic boom when you have the Biden stimulus coming on top of all of the uh, <clears throat> savings and suppressed spending that has accumulated over the period of the pandemic shutdown. Uh, and so it could be that this becomes one of those self-reinforcing things where the country ends up doing you know, so well that people will start coming around and thinking that uh, this is a great uh, presidency, but it's a big risk uh, because if it doesn't pan out that way, um, then, uh, you know, he's going to saddle the country with a big debt, with possible inflation, uh, uh, and uh, it might set the ground for, you know, a Republican comeback in uh, 2022. And I think that's going to be really disastrous because internationally, uh, what people want is to be able to depend on the United States. And if you get this constant flip-flopping uh, between parties every two years or every four years, I think that doesn't build credibility. And, you know, it, it basically weakens the United States as a, you know, pillar of dem uh, democracy around the world. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Francis Fukuyama, thank you so much for, for, for joining us today. Uh, what a great conversation, representative of the broad array of things in which you are experts and have, have opinions on. I appreciate you sharing some of those opinions with me. Sure. Well, thanks for talking with me. It's been a great pleasure.